Isabella Remington is the former head of Britain's MI5 security service. She retired in 1996 and published her autobiography, Open Secret, then embarked on a career writing the novels At Risk and Secret Asset, both featuring MI5 officer Liz Carlyle. Her new Liz Carlyle novel is Illegal Action. Thank you for joining me, Stella. I'm very pleased to be here. Stella, I, I guess for those of us in America, the first thing you could do is set up the difference between MI5 and MI6 and maybe give us some comparisons as to what's the, what would be the parallels here in America. Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that there aren't any exact parallels in America for either of those two agencies. But MI5 is Britain's internal security agency. And MI6, if it, if it matches anything, matches the CIA. But the fundamental difference is that in Britain, neither of our intelligence agencies have any police or military powers. So they're entirely civilian. And MI5's job is to try and get prior intelligence about what's being planned, the harm that's being planned, whether it's espionage or terrorism or whatever, in a, and analyse that information and try and prevent the harm happening. So that's basically their job. And MI6 gathers intelligence abroad and feeds into that process. So the two agencies work very closely together, but one's primarily abroad and one is primarily at home. Now, your character, uh, Liz Carlyle, she works for MI5. You were the head of MI5, and I'd like to dial back to that time if I could. Could you describe your career <laughs> in MI5? I joined MI5 in the very late 1960s and joining it was a complete fluke actually because in those days it wasn't the sort of job you could apply for. Nobody knew anything about British intelligence, nobody knew where it was or what it did and particularly how you joined. So I was with my husband in India having given up the job I was trained to do which was as a historical archivist and I was effectively tapped on the shoulder and offered a part-time job as a clerk typist in the small MI5 office that existed in New Delhi, India, in those days. So, as I say, it was a complete fluke. Then when we came back uh, to London, I decided this looked interesting, because it was the height of the Cold War, and I applied for a full-time job in our London headquarters. And that's how I started. And when I started, it was a service run by men, and women were really only restricted to a second-class career. We dealt with a papers really you know we did a bit of intelligence analysis if we were thought to be quite bright but basically we were assistants and gradually the world changed and uh, it was realized that women could actually do the sharp end intelligence work and they brought the big advantage of diversity of a different sort of approach so gradually I sort of moved on started working at the sharp end and uh, rose through the ranks, and that's how ultimately I ended up as being the Director General. You mentioned a great term in there, the sharp end. Tell us what that is. Well, uh, I suppose the sharp end is the actual gathering of the intelligence, because, I mean, the intelligence process really consists of gathering intelligence from all sorts of sources, and particularly human sources, who even in today's technological world are very important, and then assessing it and analysing it and trying to make sense of it, and then taking action, because the ultimate objective of MI5 is try to prevent the harm that's intended. And because they have no police powers, they work very closely with the police force, and particularly the uh, counter, the anti-terrorist part of the police force now in, in this day and age. 
Now, when you left in 1996, uh, terrorism, at least in uh, Western countries, wasn't really much of a concern, or, or was it? It certainly was in the United Kingdom, yes. Uh, terrorism has been a concern all my career, really, because not long after I joined, the IRA began to raise its head, and that was in really the beginning of the 1970s. By the 1980s, the IRA was one of the best resourced and most well-organised terrorist organisations in the world, thanks largely to Colonel Gaddafi of Libya, who had supplied them with large quantities of arms and money. So we've been dealing with our own domestic terrorism all my working life, really. And at the same time, what we called international terrorism, even in those days, was beginning to become a problem. And in the UK... We had um, some countries trying to kill their dissidents on our streets. If you think back to the 1980s, there were large numbers of hijackings and kidnappings coming primarily out of the Palestinian situation in the Middle East. But there were also various sort of national terrorist groups like the Red Brigades in Germany. So terrorism has been a feature in Europe for, as I say, all my working life. Well, this is very interesting. Um, when you when you left, you wrote a biography, autobiography, uh, Open Secret. How was that received? <laughs> I published Open Secret in 2001, so it was several years after I'd left, because I left in 1996. And it was received with a certain amount of shock horror, um, not because of what was in it, but because of the idea of somebody who'd had my former job writing their autobiography. I had to submit it for clearance, as I still do with my novels, actually. Um, and some people in the sort of clearance process decided on their own bat, really, that they were going to try and stop me publishing it. So they sent the first draft, which I'd submitted for clearance, to one of our tabloid newspapers in Britain called The Sun. And The Sun, receiving this document, didn't know quite what to do with it. So they sent it back to Number 10 Downing Street in a taxi with a press photographer, and a big sort of press furore started, even though nobody um, in the press except The Sun had actually read what was in it. So there was a, a big fuss generated largely by this incident, I think. And um, in the end, of course, when it was published, those who'd said how shocking that she's going to reveal the nation's secrets started to say, oh, how shocking that she hasn't revealed any of the nation's secrets. So it was a, it was a, big, a big fuss, really, quite unnecessary. And um, it, it did not reveal any of the nation's secrets. It was more about me than it was about the nation's secrets. As the director general of uh, MI5, you probably had to do quite a bit of writing yourself. Were you interested in writing either nonfiction or fiction before you left or before you even started? I'd often thought of writing a thriller, actually, um, while I was working, but of course I never could because I never had time apart from anything else. I'd never thought of writing my autobiography, and it turned out very strangely that that was the first thing I wrote, and I didn't come onto the fiction until afterwards. But I think all through my working life I've been a sort of um, thriller addict in some ways, and um, had, you know, I thought... I, I've got plots in my head, I thought, you know, I obviously can't write about the real stuff, but I can make up credible plots. So, yeah, it's been an ambition, really, all my working life. When, what made you decide to turn to fiction? Uh, you, clearly, you, you liked writing thrillers. Um, and maybe you could tell me 
some of your influences as a writer? Um, I don't know exactly what my influences as a writer are, but clearly a very important figure in this whole genre is John le Carré, who has always been a great favourite of mine, particularly his novels connected with the Cold War, um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, um, Smiley's People, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, all those wonderfully create, I think, the atmosphere of the Cold War, which I remember when I first joined the service because it was the height of the Cold War. It wasn't all that long after the famous British Cambridge spies, as we call them, the people who were recruited at Cambridge University in the 30s and then infiltrated the British public service, like Philby, Burgess, Maclean, all these famous names. It wasn't that long when I joined after they had fled to Moscow. And that atmosphere of, of well, of almost paranoia, really, was still around. There was uh, somebody in the CIA called James Angleton and somebody in my former service called Peter Wright. And together, they had convinced themselves that the whole of Western intelligence was penetrated by the KGB. And, and you know, it was the sort of classic wilderness of mirrors that nothing you see is real and all that stuff. And I can still remember that. And, and I think um, what John le Carre writes about speaks to that memory of my own. So he, undoubtedly, I think, has been a big influence on my own writing. Uh, I'm wondering if any of the kind of official writing you had to do, I, I presume you had to write reports and, mm. and personnel evaluations. Does any of that factor into your fiction? I don't think so. I mean, you're quite right, of course, that as a, uh, a public servant, and particularly as a former intelligence officer, a lot of what you do is write assessments and analyses and things like that. So writing in one shape or form has been a feature of my life. But writing fiction is a very different thing, really. Because when you're writing intelligence assessments, you're trying to trying to put information together and make sense of it. When you're writing fiction, you're trying to make sense, I suppose, of your imagination in a way. But it, in a sense, it comes down to the same thing because you're trying to create a coherent whole when you're writing fiction, just as you are if you're assessing intelligence. Tell us about creating Liz Carlyle. Uh, obviously, you have some sympathies with that character, <laughs> but she's operating in a very different world from the world you operated in. Yes, she is, actually, in, in many different ways. I mean, um, Liz Carlyle's operating in a world of much greater openness about British intelligence than when I joined. I mean, Liz Carlyle applied for her job, basically, because she didn't wait to be tapped on the shoulder, as I did, because nowadays... British intelligence have websites and, you know, you can apply online and, and such like. So she is working in a different world, but she's dealing with the same kind of threats that I dealt with, the threats of terrorism and the threats that come from espionage. And she's dealing with them in broadly the same way. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the um, work of, of gathering and assessing intelligence doesn't actually change all that much. The gizmos change. There's much, much more technology around now, but still the best intelligence comes from people. And Liz Carlyle's job, you know, is to try and gather and make sense of intelligence. And she's bringing something else, um, which is, you know, I suppose slightly fictional, which is the quality of female intuition um, to her job. She, Liz, being a woman, of course, I would say this, is the one who um, just adds that li little bit of extra when it comes to working out what's going on. Uh, the other 
um, aspect of Liz's job and your job was that was a, a real boys club, wasn't it? And, and could you talk about moving through that glass ceiling and and, and actually being above it of yourself <laughs> and then talk about how you how that impacts Liz Carlyle's character? Yes, well, it was a boys club really when I joined. Uh, as I say, um, you know, women were actually restricted um, to being assistants and personally... I found that rather annoying, um, and I've, um, I suppose I've echoed that atmosphere in Liz Carlyle, who also finds it rather annoying when she's patronised by the men. And um, in uh, my first book, for example, she comes up against a guy called Bruno Mackay, who is an MI6 officer, who is extremely patronising, and she ends up getting the better of him, as you would expect, as I'm writing the book. Um, and she also she has another quality, which I had, which is that she doesn't like working for people who are not as competent as she is. And in this book, Illegal Action, she comes upon a boss called Brian Ackers, who she thinks is incompetent, and she gets extremely annoyed about him as well and doesn't um, pull her punches in saying so. There's also another character whom I've created called Jeffrey Fane of MI6, who is, um, I do, ha- I must say, I have a bit of fun with this distinction between MI5 and MI6 and their different characteristics. And uh, Geoffrey Fane is um, also rather patronising and insists on calling her Elizabeth, even though everybody else calls her Liz. And she finds that very annoying too. So she does, she mirrors some of the things that I have often felt but never possibly said, uh, which I can now say in fiction. <laughs> talk a little bit about this new book. The title is Illegal Action. Now, uh, in, here in America, you look at that and you think, well, that's a, you know, it sounds like a, a the title of a Steven Seagal movie or something, uh, a little bit cheesy. But it, actually, it's very, it's all, a, this idea of the illegals is really fascinating. So, and it's at the heart of the, the novel. Mm. So tell us what these, what you mean by illegals. An illegal is uh, something which I connect particularly with the Cold War. An illegal is an officer um, of an intelligence service who is posted to a country to spy, basically, but is not part of what we would call the legal residence. In other words, the group of intelligence officers within the embassy in in a foreign country. This person, this illegal, is somebody who has a completely false identity So in this case, this person is a Russian, but is not documented as a Russian. I won't tell you what their nationality is, or I might give away the plot, but um, basically it is somebody with a completely false identity. And they are some of the most effective intelligence agents, actually. And over the years, in my own experience, such people have operated in, in Western countries, running spy rings, pretending to be nationals of... One thinks of um, uh, Lonsdale, who was posted in my country, masquerading as a Canadian businessman, who ran a ring of spies in our admiralty, in the Navy, basically, 
and ultimately he was discovered to be Colonel Malodin of the KGB. But these people are very difficult to detect. They don't come documented, say, coming to Britain, they don't come documented as a Brit because that would be a very difficult uh, role to play. They, they would come documented as a, somebody from a different nationality. And as I say, they're very difficult to detect. And I have recreated that uh, situation in illegal action. And illegal action is kind of a, a it has a somewhat of a retro feel because we're back with the Russians in the Cold War. We are here in America. We're very preoccupied with terrorism. And in fact, that even gets a, a mention in the book. Yeah. Um, but uh, tell us a, a little bit about the situation, because some of these facts you give us are, are pretty surprising about the number of foreign agents that are currently on the U- UK soil. Well, I um, started off by thinking I'd written two novels and they were both about terrorism. So I decided that I would have a bit of fun, you know, in putting Liz in what's called the counter-espionage branch. And I said to myself, OK, well, let's say that she's in the counter-espionage branch. What will her targets be? And of course, because I'm a, you know, I did a lot of work in the Cold War, I thought, well, let's make her targets the Russian intelligence service. And I said, what would the Russian intelligence service be interested in? And one of the things that occurred to me was that there are a large number of what we call oligarchs, that is very rich Russians living in, particularly in London, but in the UK in general, who got very rich uh, when Yeltsin privatised some of the state industries and they were able to buy them up. And many of them are actually billionaires. And we have 30 or more of these people living in London and some of them are quite vocally uh, vocal opponents of the current regime in Moscow. So it occurred to me, as I sat down and thought about it, um, that one of the targets of the Russian intelligence officers in London would be these people. And so that's the basis of my plot. And lo and behold, while I was writing the book, something very similar did actually happen in London when a man called Alexander Litvinenko was murdered in London by somebody who put polonium, as it turned out, and a radioactive poison in his tea. So I thought, my goodness, you know, um, fiction is sort of not nearly as wild as fact. Because I, if I had thought of kind of murdering somebody with polonium, I don't think anybody would have believed it. But there we are, it actually happened. This is one of the more in, uh, fun parts of your book, as you recount some of the, the history of espionage in in the UK. And uh, one of the things that, that I thought was, was really fascinating was the umbrella incident. Could you tell us about that? Remind us about the umbrella incident. Yes, the umbrella incident was when a Bulgarian dissident, now we're talking, we're going back now to the, I think we're going back to the 80s, I can't exactly remember the date. Now, what were you doing? Where were you in the agency doing when this happened? I was um, in the counter-espionage branch when this actually happened. And in fact, it so happened that I was the duty officer the night that it happened. And I can remember being rung up by a policeman, basically, who said that um, some incident has happened and a man is ill and is claiming that he was stabbed by somebody with an umbrella on Waterloo Bridge over the Thames in London. And I didn't believe this. This seemed to me to be something straight out of a spy story. But in fact, it turned out to be right. And Georgi Markov, as he was called was indeed poisoned by a pellet that was injected into him through the means of an umbrella. And later, another very similar incident occurred in Paris. Georgi Markov died 
the poison was rice in and it, uh, it seeped out of this pellet. Um, the man in Paris didn't die and they were able to recover the pellet and that's how everybody knew what the process had been. Wow. <laughs> uh, did But you never caught the man who did this in... in, in we didn't, in... no. We never did. Tell us, uh, the Russians have a not just a history of assassinations. Uh, they've recently passed a law to to legalize assassinations, haven't they? I believe that they've passed a law saying that the intelligence services have a right to pursue and even kill the nation's enemies wherever they may be. That's my understanding, yes. And, and you talk also about another... Uh, the parallel with the oligarchs is uh, the white Russians versus the the Bolsheviks. Yes, that's going back into history when um, the white Russians had congregated in Paris and uh, were, I suppose, in a sense, the same kind of seen as the same kind of threat that some of the oligarchs uh, who are living in London now may be seen as, i.e., you know, a group of people who were dissident, you know, didn't approve of the the system uh, at the time in the same way some of the oligarchs don't approve of what's, you know, the system that's uh, in operation in um, in Russia now. It really interested me when you told me, because I didn't had no idea that this was true, that MI5 and MI6 are civilian yes. organizations. Uh, I somehow had in my mind they were police or, or military. Um, so... Uh, could you talk about the problems of being a, a purely civilian um, operation and, and how that impacts what happens in your novels? Because they actually are at find them, your characters find themselves recruiting civilian raw civilians, mm. and, and that pre- presents some problems. Um, I suppose the key to all this is close liaison, really, because when you have civilian services, particularly MI five, who is trying to prevent the harm happening, then it's absolutely essential that they work very closely with the police because it's the police who have to go out and make arrests, for example, when, uh, you know, intelligence points to the fact that some kind of terrorist operation is being planned. So close liaison between the intelligence services and the police is absolutely vital. In my life, that hasn't always worked quite as well as it does now. And, you know, all these things, I suppose, are learning curves in a way. And, um, you know, you start from a basis where collaboration is not very close and there's kind of mutual suspicion. But now I believe that they are working extremely closely together. But it does mean everybody knowing whose responsibility is what and not falling all over each other and working closely together all the way through. And you'll find that reflected in my novels, actually, where uh, Liz, you know, gets involved with the police and uh, sometimes... Well, for fun, really, I make that relationship not as easy as it might be. Uh, but in real life, I do believe that you know that collaboration works very well now. One of the things you do really well, and I think that's an important tool in in this book, is ambiguity. You'll tell us something, but not quite everything. Could you talk about using ambiguity to keep the readers because she's going, oh, what's what's happening? <laughs> well, I suppose that's the, um, in a sense, is the skill of the intelligence officer actually. Um, and Jeffrey Fane, who is my MI6 character, does this to perfection because he never tells everybody everything he knows. He always keeps something back. And, of course, the thing he's kept back turns out to be the key fact that if only they'd known that at the beginning, they might well have all behaved in a completely different way. So I think that 
it, it kind of I think it reflects my professional experience that when you're an intelligence officer, you never do actually know everything, because being an intelligence officer is like being a jigsaw puzzle player. You're trying to put together the pieces that you've got of a jigsaw where you haven't got a picture. So you don't know what the picture is that you're trying to create. You haven't got all the pieces. Some of the pieces that you've got might relate to some other jigsaw altogether. So that's the skill of being an intelligence officer. And that's what I suppose, unconsciously in a way, I bring to writing novels. It's the same thing. I'm trying to put together something, uh, a plot and, and a progression through a plot, where I don't want the reader to have all the pieces. I want to keep some of the pieces back. Uh, and only put them in, you know, at the right moment to keep the reader reading. You do a good, if somewhat bleak job, <laughs> of painting uh, Liz's social life, which is uh, tends to be between um, people who are either not what they seem or are all too much what they seem. <laughs> is this reflective of maybe some of your experience? Yes, I think it probably is. I mean, there's no doubt about it that if you work in a secret organisation and, you know, in spite of greater openness, intelligence services still are largely secret, then it is quite difficult to have the kind of ordinary social life that most people take for granted because you can't talk about what you do. And if you think about it, you know, one of the most important exchanges that you make, particularly with new contacts or friends, is what do you do? It's, the, it's one of the key defining things. And if you can't talk about what you do, then it does make it very difficult to have these kind of um, casual social relationships. And that is, that's a real feature, actually, about working in a secret organisation. And I reflect that in Liz, actually. She does find it very difficult to make social contacts, to have successful relationships. And um, she yearns, in a way, after her boss, Charles Weatherby, who's actually married, um, so she's all, she's got that going. She tries various kind of social relationships outside the circle of secrecy, but they never really quite work. And I think that is, in a way, is a, a reflection of, of real life. She comes has come out of counterterrorism, uh, and into in this book uh, into counterespionage. But before she was in counterterrorism, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and and dial back and just talk about security theory, which uh, really informs this entire book. Now, it was during your tenure as uh, director general that I think London became the most surveilled city in the world. You have the most close CCTV cameras up there. Uh, could you talk about that decision and and did you how much of a part did you play in the decision to do that and how effective do you think it's been? Well, it's very interesting that you are right that the seems to be the case that there are more CCTV cameras in London than there are in any other city in the world. So they say, um, and strangely enough, many most of them were put up without any kind of legislation or, as far as I know, firm government decision that this should be done. Because many of them are not about basically about security at all. They're primarily 
you know, about controlling the traffic or about uh, crime in, in shopping areas or about um, individuals wanting to, you know, protect their property or whatever or whatever. So it, this isn't a kind of state decision that the nation should be surveilled by CCTV cameras. It just seems to have happened in a strange sort of way. So I was not part of that decision. And as far as I can see, nobody was actually part of the decision that all this should happen. And I think one has to remember as well, you know, when people say, oh, it's taking away our civil liberties, one has to remember that most of these things are not being continuously monitored. And it's only when something happens, like the 7th of July, two years ago, explosions on the London underground, that many of this is called into play. And very useful, it turns out, to be on those sort of occasions. And, you know, we've all seen the kind of chilling pictures from the um, surveillance cameras on the railway and the underground of these guys setting off with their backpacks on to explode their bombs on the London underground. And they're very clear pictures and, you know, quite identifiable. So, you know, that, that that's the answer. I don't believe it was a decision taken by anybody. I think it happened. Um, and it's turning out to be quite useful when there is an incident. But for the most part, these things are not used, not monitored. I, I wonder if you could talk about um, what right now we're... Both of our countries are engaged in two two wars against uh, pri- pitched as wars against terrorism, and you're you were the director of MI5 in a country that was overwhelmed by domestic terrorism. Do you think that uh, war is the best way to fight terrorism? I think the concept of a war on terrorism was actually misleading because it gives the impression that you can defeat terrorism by military means, which largely I don't believe you can. I think terrorism has to be defeated, if it can be defeated, by a whole complex of means. Military is one of them in certain circumstances. Intelligence is another. Police work is another to arrest. But another uh, is by political means, by changing hearts and minds, by trying to identify what the key causes are that sets people off on the road to terrorism. So I don't believe that terrorism can be defeated by purely military means. And there are certain circumstances where military means are important. But as I say, I think it's only one aspect of this. And and the concept of a war has been quite misleading, I think. Could you talk about uh, some of the... Right now, here in America, we're getting more and more uh, electronic surveillance, surveillance of our phone calls. And I believe that's already uh, extant in the UK. Am I mistaken about that? Um, In certain circumstances, um, phone calls can be intercepted um, by, uh, well, my area, of course, is the intelligence world. But in order to do that, uh, a warrant in the UK has to be sought, not from the judicial process as it is in the United States, but from a government minister. And a case has to be made, a very detailed case about why it's necessary to do that, what the background is, why the information you're seeking can only be obtained by that route. And then there is a judicial, a senior judge will later review the granting of that warrant and if he thinks it was wrong, will say so publicly. So there is, there are very strict um, you know, rules about how this can be done and who, whose uh, 
communications can be intercepted. But uh, the interception of communications is a very key intelligence tool, without a doubt. How, when you're intercepting more and more communications, you're just generating huge amounts of data. And I think one of the things you pointed out about the CCTVs was that there's so many of them that they're often just not even being monitored. And and as we increase more and more the number of people we suspect, uh, the number of people who are officially potential terrorists in the United States just topped a million. The list just Mm -hmm. topped a million names today or in the last couple of days. When you have that much data, how do you decide what's relevant and how do you find it? How do you find find those needles in the haystack? Mm. I think the important thing is not to allow yourself to get so much data, frankly. It's about being extremely discriminating and only investigating when you have really sound, good reason to believe that there is a threat. Uh, I think, you know, you've got to go back to the Cold War and think about the East German Stasi uh, who were investigating everybody. Um, You know, they were running huge numbers of human sources spying on each other and they ended up being completely overwhelmed with the amount of information they had. And I think that is a real danger if you allow, you know, any country allows themselves uh, to go kind of over the top on all this. I think it's about being extremely discriminating and only investigating people that you have really, really good reason to believe are planning, you know, some something uh, damaging. Now, there's a scene in your latest novel where uh, a character receives a dressing down by the DG. And I'm wondering if this is something you found yourself doing at some point in time. <laughs> Um, no, mercifully, I didn't because I didn't come across anybody like this character who's completely incompetent and did something really, really very stupid. So I didn't actually ever have to dress down anybody. But, you know, from time to time, obviously, things go wrong and people don't always uh, do the right thing. But certainly, no, that is an entirely imaginary scene. Uh the other uh, aspect I thought was very interesting was y- you have a character who's kind of a, a loose cannon, and there's maybe a certain amount uh, of nepotism involved. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk, does that play a part in in the service right now, the MI5 and MI6? Or is there, I mean, if you have family in there, is it easier to get yourself? No, in? absolutely not. Um, it isn't. And everybody is uh, recruited in the same way, goes through the same recruitment process and the idea is to try and identify people who've got the right sort of skills and characteristics etc for the job that they have applied for it's a pretty formal process and certainly there's no question of nepotism now uh, the other aspect we see one thing that a scene I really liked with Liz Carlisle was the um, when she gets the bluffers guide and this indicates that something that's an essential skill for you and for the people who were working for you is the ability to learn quickly. It is, actually. I think that is because you don't ever know exactly what situation you're going to be faced with. And you do have to be able to, you know, adapt and and learn very quickly how to deal with each new situation. It's part of of the characteristics that you would be looking for when you were recruiting somebody to this kind of a job. It's the ability to think fast and, um, uh, you know, um, work on your on your feet in, in circumstances where you can't ring somebody up and say, this has happened, what shall I do next? 
uh, you've got to be able to work out something sensible on your own. You described the the counterterrorism group as uh, trying to stop something unimaginable. And this is something that, uh, as a novelist, that's also something you're you're actually trying to describe the unimaginable. And so I'm wondering if you you have a have a, a bit of a conflict as a writer. How how you get past that? You know, you don't want to write about something. The feeling that some some reader writers are somewhat superstitious. I think some science fiction writers write science fiction specifically so they think their visions will not come to pass. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you. Uh, that you yourself feel that some way when you're writing because you're mm. so close to to reality for you. Yeah. No, I think that's true, actually. I don't think I would want to write a book that ended up with some really appalling event. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, I wouldn't wish to... I just wouldn't wish that to happen, even even in fiction. So I try to end my books they don't always end happily and they don't always end as kind of massive successes for Liz Carlyle and her colleagues but I have never and, and wouldn't ever write a book that ended up with some kind of holocaust type situation occurring. Could you talk a little bit about the the research for for your new book I mean, if it involves a conference in the Middle East I mean do you still have connections in the world you used to work in, and are you able to employ those to add veracity to your books, even though it's been, I guess, 12 years since you left? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't either um, think of, you know, trying to find out any details of what they're currently up to. This would not be to my advantage or to anybody's advantage. And in fact, I still have to submit my books for clearance to make sure that I haven't inadvertently come across something that they are actually currently doing and, and I'm giving away, you know, inadvertently some kind of technique or whatever. So, no, the, it comes out of my imagination, actually, and my close study of, you know, what's actually really going on in the world. So it comes out of my experience, my imagination and current events. Current events and history, and I wonder if you talk about how your the Cold War history and, and just the history of Britain and political history in general informs your work? Um, I suppose you have to remember that my work is basically geared to my own experience and I'm not writing, you know, history. I'm writing fiction based on one particular segment, really, um, of um, current affairs, which is, you know, the, the activities of one intelligence service trying to prevent uh, harm to the country and uh, through my own experience um, when I started as I say it was the height of the Cold War and the harm was going to come from in those days the, the Soviet Union and their allies in Eastern Europe and I knew quite you know quite closely what was going on and then I worked through a period of enhanced terrorism so I knew quite closely what was going on there but all this comes out of my own experience and, as I say, my imagination working on that. So I'm not trying to write contemporary history. I'm, I'm trying to write fiction, basically, that people will, will want to read and will enjoy reading. I've been speaking with Stella Remington. Her newest book is Illegal Action. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much.
4K USP and the Agony Column. This is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of September 14th. To include your event in our listing, please email me at literary at KUSP.org. At Capitola Book Cafe on Tuesday, September 16th at 7.30 p.m., it's David Harris who will talk about and sign The Genius, How Bill Walsh Reinvented Football and Created an NFL Dynasty, which reveals the brilliant man behind the coaching legend. Call 462-4415 for the play-by-play. On Wednesday, September 17th, at 6.30 p.m. at the Capitola Book Cafe, the book club meets to discuss this month's selection, The Hummingbird's Daughter by Luis Alberto Urea. Read it and join the discussion. Call 462-4415 for details. At Gateway's Books and Gifts on Wednesday, September 17th at 7 p.m., get together under one roof as author Lynn Jensen turns his keen eye and powerful prose explicitly to the teachings of the Buddha. Call 429-9600 for details. At Bookshop Santa Cruz on Thursday, September 18th at 7.30 p.m., Irvine Walsh, cult novelist most known for train spotting, has written a sizzling new novel, Crime. Call 423-0900 for more information. At Gateway's Books and Gifts on Thursday, September 18th at 7 p.m., take notes on the need for beauty from Ruth Gendler and celebrate the beauty in the world and in ourselves. Call 429-9600 for details. At Capitola Book Cafe on Thursday, September 18th at 7.30 p.m., journey with Mark Richardson through Zen and Now on the trail of Robert Persig and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which retraces the Persig's route from Minneapolis to San Francisco. Call 462-4415 for directions. On Friday, September 19th at midnight, Come to Bookshop Santa Cruz and be among the first to buy A Brisinger by Christopher Paolini. It's the third book in his popular fantasy series. Call 423-0900 for more information. For KUSP and the Agony Column, I'm Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and around the county for the week of September 14th. Get out there and read a book! James Maughan, and I'm the poetry editor of Ping Pong Magazine. Tell me a little bit about Ping Pong. I know it's the second year since it's come back. Yeah, it's uh, it's the second year. Ping Pong was originally uh, a journal that the library put out primarily to promote the work of Henry Miller. The library being the Henry Miller the Henry Library. Miller. Yes, the Henry Miller Memorial Library. Uh, and they decided the magazine went defunct and they decided that they wanted to resurrect it as an actual literary journal uh, that isn't necessarily just focused on the work of Henry Miller. Uh, so Maria Garcia Teutsch asked myself and Jessica Burheny to uh, edit it, uh, help her edit it, and uh, that's what we've been doing. There's some really impressive bios 
uh, of the folks in there. And I wonder if you could talk to me about your selection process. Uh, yeah, so far, the, these two issues, the, the majority of the work has been solicited. Uh, we've been writing to people we know or to people we admire and respect and asking them for work, and they have been remarkably forthcoming. Um, we're hoping, as the issues come out, to have more and more balance between solicitation and submission, uh, but so far we're still primarily doing solicitation. And lots of impressive international folks as well. Certainly Miller had a huge draw abroad. Is his name bringing in some uh, some folks from abroad that you're again, not soliciting that I have, you know, just glommed on to, hey, you know, I've got something for that, for that journal, because I know and respect that person that's, that was behind it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, and both writers here in the States and international writers, uh, either through submission or solicitation, have communicated to all of us uh, how important the work of Henry Miller was to them. And they were, that much more forthcoming because his name was involved. Uh, as far as the international bent of the magazine goes, that was a, a choice that the three of us made with uh, the managing editor, Dave, Dan Linehan, that was something that particularly for me uh, as a poet was very important because I feel that a lot of the, the poetry community in the United States is, is kind of myopic uh, about the work contemporary poets are doing elsewhere in the world. And I wanted to do what small bit I could to make a dent in that. Uh, so in this issue, we're very happy to have the work of H.E. Saya, uh, who is a, an outstanding contemporary Iranian poet. Uh, the work of Fergal Gaynor, uh, a poet from Ireland who uh, is just coming into prominence in Ireland, and I think he's going to be a major, a major voice there. And uh, this was the first time that his work has ever appeared in print in the United States, so that was very exciting for me. And that, so that international bent has been very, very important to us. Jessica Brehenny, the fiction editor for Ping Pong. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Thanks for talking to me, too. (laughs) So what do you do the rest of the year when you're not at journal release parties in Big Sur, California? Well, in all of my spare time throughout the year, uh, I teach at San Jose City College. I teach um, in the English department there. And uh, they let me teach creative writing, uh, which is nice, too. And I also put out a little journal for the students uh, when I'm there as well, two times a year, um, each semester. And I also write. I write fiction. And um, 
And then I also try to get away from all that too and <laughs> hike and take drives to beautiful places like here in Big Sur. Mm. So tell me a little bit about the tone of the fiction in Ping Pong this time around in this issue. Um, well, I think one of the things that I like about it is that we have, um, it's very varied. So um, one of the um, one of the things that we're trying to do in the magazine is we're trying to bring together a lot of different voices. So um, we have uh, the, the Jonathan Ames story, which is um, very um, sort of ironic and very uh, tongue-in-cheek sexual exploits story. And then we also have um, this um, uh a couple, a couple of much more serious kinds of stories. Richard Lang's story, um, um, which is about the, it's it's about a lot of things, but it's a lot about um, the effects of trauma on uh, people's actions later, and it's also um, a lot about uh, class issues as well. Mm-hmm. And so we have this kind of, I don't know if it's a balance exactly. It's a it's a sort of a you know a, a these dialogic kinds of voices, these multiple voices coming together and sharing this space. Mm. Um, and that's what we're aiming for, is to have a variety of different kinds of perspectives and, and styles mm. as well. Um, some very realist and some not very realist mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Well, what other literary journals do you read on a regular basis? They seem to be kind of um, the redheaded stepchild of, of, of literature sometimes, the journals. Uh, well, I love the journals. I, I read as many as I, as I can get my hands on, and I, I pick them up um, at the bookstores. Um, I have a subscription right now to Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, which is my, my new favorite. It's a speculative zine, and they do really interesting, uh, wonderful work. I've also been lately reading a lot of online journals, which I think are also publishing some really innovative kind of work. I enjoy one of our um, writers, Hugh Ben Steinberg, um, edits a journal. 1111 out of um, uh, California College for the Arts and I, I enjoyed that one. On my bedside table right now I have a uh, Missouri Review and Alimentum which, uh, which is a, a journal focused on literature of food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think which other magazines I have just well, tell me where ping pong fits in. Where does it fit in? Well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, like I said before, we're trying to combine a lot of different kinds of styles and a lot of different kinds of voices. So one of the things that happens in in a lot of magazines, and this is a, a good thing, is people have a style, like, like McSweeney's, which is another magazine that I forgot to mention, um, has a really distinct kind of a style. And... What we wanted to do with ping pong is we wanted to have a style um, that was about including lots of different kinds of styles. And so we have all kinds of schools of poetry, all kinds of schools of fiction writing. Um, I'd actually like to see us bring in some more... Uh, speculative fiction in the magazine as well and that's something I want to work on for the next time. Can you explain what you mean by speculative fiction? Sure, it's mixed genre writing and it tends usually when people say uh, speculative, uh, by mixed genre I mean like fantasy and science fiction and magical realism and these sorts of things but usually when people say speculative they also mean 
also very uh, literary at the same time. And so you get these really interesting kinds of there's a kind of freedom in what a lot of people are doing in that right now that I really appreciate. And so I'd like to bring some of that in as well. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I'm Rick Cleffel for the Agony Column. I'm speaking with Shauna Graham. She's a contributor to Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet and the latest issue of Ping Pong Magazine. Thank you for joining me, Shauna. Thanks for having me, Rick. Shauna, let's talk a little bit about Ping Pong Magazine. In the interview with uh, the fiction editor, uh, Ms. Berheny, uh, she talked about a real interest in speculative fiction, which I thought was shocking, and said she said her favorite zine was Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. Uh, she wasn't the only one there who had a familiarity with it. Uh, one of the poets and his wife were quite impressed to hear that I had a credit with them, and I think it might help me get them to at least read another one of my stories. So in the small journal world, uh, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet is quite well known. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you about your uh, contribution to, to ping pong. Uh, tell us a bit about how, when you started writing it and what your thoughts were behind it. I actually am not quite sure when I started writing it. it it's been around a little while before I actually submitted it to them. Uh, the story is about two characters who are very different and one of them is basically helping the other, but the origin of it was that I needed somebody to help me be like the person who helps the uh, the person who's not very able to handle the world and I thought wouldn't that be great and th then the characters sort of developed out of that idea. Now when you completed the story did you have the idea that you'd submit it to a literary journal or did you submit it elsewhere? I submitted it to some literary journals and this just came about because I do know Jessica uh, Brahaney and she was telling me they were still, still had open submissions for fiction so it was kind of just a lucky chance. Well, and this is something I wanted to explore because I think that uh, one's chances for being published um, probably are magnified if one hangs out in a bookstore or worksire. Uh, I wouldn't really say that, actually. I think what magnifies your chances of being published are when you get to know different writers who have different connections to different small journals. It's kind of a small world that once you're connected, it's a lot easier to approach people than when you're just a stranger to it. Well, tell us how you made these connections and who you've connected with. Okay, well, now what I'm going to say now is just going to uh, refute what I said. Uh, Jim Mom, who was the poetry editor, actually used to work at Bookshop Santa Cruz. So I know these people in a roundabout way through that, but Jessica and I connected uh, in a more direct way when she was working for Homestead Review, which is the Hartnell College uh, Journal. And she took a story of mine then. Well, um, tell us a little bit about the uh, submission process to, to Ping Pong. I mean, because they're not open to submission, don't they? They uh, request submissions. Isn't that true? I think they're open to them. I, I actually don't really know because I sort of came in this side door. Uh, 
but I think they have a reading period like anybody else and that uh, what you would want to do is you know contact them and see when that is and if they have openings in areas uh, that you write in uh, I, I think Jim for the poetry does do a lot more active solicitation 